Hey, thanks for tuning in to the First Monroe podcast. For more information on our church, visit firstmonroe.com. We hope you enjoy. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 4. You can turn or click to Genesis chapter 4. We've been in a series entitled Foundations as we've been walking through the book of Genesis, seeing the gospel in the book of Genesis. I want to go on record saying this um, just so that you know, okay, that if why Alan and I might accidentally punch Shane, okay? So... I want you to know where I'm coming from and hear me on record that if you ever hear about your pastor hitting your music minister, I want you to know why and I want you to know that it's justified, all right? (laughs) Shane likes to play this little game and uh, likes to do this thing where he likes to hide behind things and jump out and scare you. Um, It's something that he does often um, that we don't expect and so... I just want you to know, if he ever jumps out and scares me and I accidentally punch him, I want you to know why. And that's warranted, right? That's justified. There are people, you may be these people that like to jump out and scare people. My wife is one of these people. My wife loved, actually what's funny is I'd already had written this out and then yesterday I'd walked in, I didn't see anybody in the house and I didn't know where they were and so I, was, I think I was washing something out and I heard just small footsteps come behind me. I looked and Kirsten was creeping up to scare me. And so it's something that Kirsten enjoys to do. I guess her and Shane are similar. You may be the person like me that doesn't like it at all, uh, that you don't like to be scared. You don't like someone to sneak up on you and try to get you. And so this is something that I'm working on. I think Shane's just about got everybody in the office at some point in time, and then he's trying to do more. And so please, please know, um, I love Shane, but if I accidentally hit him, you know why, Okay. Um, I was thinking about this, and I think what's similar to this situation is similar to what we're going to find in the text this morning, and that's similar to sin. Is that a lot of times, I don't know if you realize this about sin, but sin sometimes it doesn't always rear its head when we think it will. Or sometimes it seems like this, that maybe we're going through life, and sometimes out of nowhere it seems like sin just creeps up in our life. Maybe it's similar, I don't want to compare shame to sin, but, but in a similar way... In a similar way, that, that, that it's, it, when I turn a door, I'm not expecting Shane to be there. I mean, that's why it scares us. Is because when I turn the corner, I don't want Shane to be right there. I'm expecting nothing to be there. But I'll say this. It, in our life, it's the same thing with sin. There are many times in life where we make turns or we go into seasons or things where we're not expecting sin to get us. And the reality is that sin is waiting for us to take us and make destruction in our life. This is one of the things I think this is one of the central themes of this passage that we're going to look at this morning is how sin will sneak up on you. And here's the reality. You will not know it's coming many of the times. And many of the times it will sneak up on you and it will come after you. And so here's what I want us to see this morning and our challenge this morning and our call to us this morning that I want us to give us is this truth. The challenge is that you would make every effort to avoid sin. Take notes this morning. Here's kind of the main call, the main challenge is to make every effort to avoid sin. That sin is lurking and we must prepare ourselves to avoid it. That we must be ready for it. Thank goodness I've gotten where I'm better at not getting scared by Kirsten because I'm kind of expecting it. And I know that she'll try to jump out and scare me. And similar to sin is that we need to do everything in our life to prepare ourselves so that when sin does seek to deceive us or it does seek to come out and surprise us and, and jump on us in a sense, that we would be ready for it. And we're going to see that by looking at the story of Cain and Abel. 
this is kind of a interesting story. I mean, obviously, one of the main applications is I hope you don't kill your siblings. So th- that's one of the points that we could pull from that. So if you want to kill your siblings, understand that's sin. And we're to not kill our siblings. But there's something a lot deeper in this story of just murder is a part of this story. But what we'll see in this passage is the ideas of worship, of sin, of all these things that, that really here is, in a sense, what God is, as we read through this, is that you and I should not be like Cain. When you grow up, you don't want to be like Cain. I don't think everyone's ever said, like, hey, I want to be like Cain. But many times in the stories we'll see, reading through it, that many times we are Cain. Many times we behave like Cain. And so the, the instruction for us this morning is we would do every, make every effort in our life to change and to run from sin. So here's how we'll look at it this morning. We'll read the passage, just walk through the passage, make a few notes, and then I want to give some application for us of how we can avoid sin in our life. So if you have your word, uh, Genesis chapter 4, we'll start in verse 1. Here's what it says. Now Abraham knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And she again, and again, she bore his brother Abel. And now Abel was the keeper of sheep, and Cain was the worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the grounds. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of the fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offerings, but for Cain and his offerings, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to his Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is your Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground which you has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from the face I shall be hidden, and I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. The Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. And then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. One of the things that we see and we note in this, obviously there's several characters. There's Abel, there's Cain, there's Eve and Adam at the beginning, and then there's God. But really the main central character of this story It's really Cain, and so it's really drawing us. We don't really know much about Abel. We really don't know a whole lot about Cain, but really this story is centered on and as we focus on this character of Cain. Now, one of the things we see, if you remember a couple weeks ago, we just got out of chapter 3. The fall has just happened, and just how quickly have things gone, I mean, crazy. I mean, obviously they've grown up, so obviously there's been some time since the fall, but just think about this. Like, already you have brothers killing one another. Like, this has escalated really quickly, right? I mean, just think how much sin in the fall has already, like, just at the very beginning, we already have murder, and it's the murder of a brother. I mean, this, this takes off really quickly, and we see how sin is, is affecting literally everything. At the very beginning, we, we have this, if you look down in verse 1, it tells us that Adam knew Eve, and she conceived, and she bore a son. She named him Cain, and then she had another son, his little brother named Abel. 
And then the story just kind of jumps. It doesn't tell us anything about their childhood or about growing up. All it just tells us is their occupation. It says that Abel, he was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain, he was a tiller of the ground. He was a farmer. Now, there's been a lot of people that have had this speculation about this passage of already of saying, like, why was one regarded and one not? And so one of the things says, well, he, Abel was with the sheep. He was with animals. Uh, Cain was with the ground, and it's already been cursed in chapter 3. And because of that, he should be more cursed. But let me just say this. There's no indication for any of that. It seems that both occupations are good. Both are needed. And so there's no implication already at the very beginning that that one's better than the other, uh, whether it's Abel or whether it's Cain. But it tells us this, that they come to the time of worship. So they come to make an offering, most likely. We don't know how they learned this, probably from Adam, but we're not sure. And they come to make this offering. It tells us that Cain offered up an offering of the fruits of the ground. And it says this in verse 4, that Abel came and he offered up the firstborn of his flock and of the fat portions. And this scripture tells us this. That God regarded Abel and his offering, but had complete disregard for Cain and his offering. And there's been a lot of speculation of why. Because we really don't know much, really, of the story. It just kind of just tells us this, kind of gives us God's perspective, that he regarded Abel's and then he really cast away Cain's. Now, as we see this, and as it... I think there's a lot of people that says, well, and here's what some of the texts say or some of the people say, commentators, would say, well, Cain was disregarded because he didn't offer up an animal sacrifice. It was grains. But when you go to the Old Testament, grain offering is acceptable. And really what you begin to see in this passage is that it really had nothing to do with what was being offered, but rather it had to do with the person offering the gift or the heart and the motive behind the person offering the gift. I want you to listen to what one commentator says. He said, in each case... The person is mentioned before the offering, which suggests that the kind of offering is not as important to the story as the attitude in the person making that offering. The New Testament gives us a little more perspective. In Hebrews eleven four, it tells us this. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, though which he was commended as righteous, God commended him by accepting his gift, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. And so what we see is that most likely... The reason why one was regarded over the other, it was an issue of faith. It was an issue of the heart. It was an issue of that one was truly worshiping God. One was merely doing it out of duty. Now, it says this about Abel, that he offered up the first, the first of his flock, the, the, the fattest of his... And it says that Cain offered up the grain or the fruits of the ground. We don't know if it, it, could, have been sec, it could have been leftovers. It could have been something. But whatever it was, we see that there's something about the motive of the heart, that Abel, his motive was pure. His motive was based on faith and worship. Cain's was not. And we see that not just in what God disregards that he sees past this, but also in Cain's response. The text says this right after. It says, after Cain saw this, he began to be angry and his face fell. Now, we can understand this, right? His little brother was just accepted when he was rejected. I think any of us can have sympathy for Cain. How horrible would it be that all of a sudden in this story you see Abel, the younger brother, God says, I accept you in what you've done. Cain, I do not accept you in what you've done. Now, notice this. It's not a a disregard forever. But it's a disregard at this point of his offering and what he offered up to God. I don't know that, you know, the story doesn't really give us, this is just my assumption. Do you think this is not the first time this has happened? Like the text doesn't say, so that's what I'm saying. It's kind of a mystery here. But I would be willing to bet this isn't the first time that Abel's been accepted and Cain's been disregarded. 
that probably for what we see in the text, this was probably the last straw. This was the the straw that broke the camel's back in a sense. And this is really what drove Cain and he gets angry. But here's what's interesting is before he does anything, God intervenes. God actually comes to talk to Cain. Look down in verse 6. It says, The Lord came to Cain and says, Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? We know this about when you get angry, when you get mad, when you get bitter, most likely you can see it on everybody's face. You could see it all over Cain's face of his anger, his bitterness, his resentment, his jealousy, his envy toward his brother. And here's what the Lord, this is a very kind of the central verse in this text of what he says. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Like in a sense, probably most likely going back to worship. Like if you do what is required, if you do what is acceptable, like if you do similar to your brother Cain, like won't you be accepted too? Like you don't have to be disregarded. But he says this, but if you don't do well what he did, he says, understand this, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is contrary to you, meaning its desire is to destroy you. Now, here's what's interesting in this text is he kind of personifies sin in a sense to make it almost like a person that's, I don't want to compare it to Shane, but someone that is crouching and waiting, that is looking for a moment. He says, look, if you are not doing what is right, if you are walking in what not is right, you need to understand this. Sin is waiting for you. It almost gives this picture of like if you think like a lion, that a lion is crouching and hiding, and you really don't know the lion is there until right at the last moment. We talked about this in a sermon in First Peter of comparing it to Satan, because Satan's compared to a lion in a similar way that he is seeking to devour. I showed a video of these two lions attacking this buffalo, and it didn't go over well. Um, and so we had to stop the video. And so for, for the sake of everyone's emotions, I won't show the video today, even though Mufasa told us it is the circle of life. And so we need to understand that. Um, but for sake, I won't show any videos of any line of attacking. But it's this similar thing. It says, like, sin is waiting for you. And if you aren't ready or if you are walking in where you do not need what, like you need to recognize that sin is crouching and waiting for you. And its desire for you is not good. It's not something that is going to help you. It's actually going to destroy you. And so here's what I think is very interesting and really gracious by God is before Cain does anything, God comes to him and says, I want you like you don't have to do this. He says, actually rule over it. I've given you the power so that you don't have to give into this. But it seems like Cain's already has his mind made up, right? He goes and he begins to, in the field, talks to his brother and just kills his brother right there. Then God comes again, and it's similar to Adam and Eve. As, remember, after Adam and Eve sin, God comes and asks them, where are you? He comes to Cain and he says a similar question of, where's your brother? Now, we know this. God already knows where Abel is, right? But he's not asking this for his sake. He's asking this for Cain's sake. So that Cain, similar to last week, what we saw, that he would confess. That he would own up to his sin. He would own up to the things that he did. But obviously he does not do that. He actually goes a step further. He lies. I don't know. And then he says this. You think I'm my brother's babysitter? I don't know where he is. I mean, the dude is lying straight to God and now he's getting smart with God. You think I'm his babysitter? You think I'm the one supposed to keep up with my little brother? I don't know where he is. And then he says, well, here's the interesting thing. His blood's actually calling out to me right now. I know exactly where he is. And it's calling out vengeance and justice against you. Then what God does is he begins to go through all of these judgments on Cain. He begins to walk through. The ground's already been cursed. And he says, I'm going to curse it again for you. He begins, says, you're going to be a wonder. You're going to be a fugitive, all these different things. And then what's interesting is that Cain... Down in verse 13 says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. 
This guy is now trying to get out of what he just did. I said this last week when we were talking about uh, consequences of sin because that is the reality. When you sin against God, when you rebel against God, there are consequences. And because there's consequences, there is justice and judgment toward us. And here's what's interesting is that he's not sorry for what he did. He's just sorry he got caught. And for many of us, that's very true in our life is that when we sin, a lot of times our remorse over our sin is not that we're actually sorry for what we did and that we rebelled against God. It's just that we don't want to have to deal with the consequences. Cain right here is like, look, this is too great of a judgment. It's Actually, it's grace judgment because he should just be killed right off the bat and yet God spares him. And so he begins to almost make these excuses as this is too great a penalty for me. And God says, well, people aren't going to kill you. I'm going to put a mark on you. And then it just leaves us with this, that that Cain went away. He left the presence of the Lord and he went and settled in a land of Nod. Now you can see in this story very quickly that things have gone wild because of sin. Cain has done a lot of horrendous things. Not only has sin messed up his relationship with God, but it's also messed his relationship up with probably his parents, with his brother. I mean, just the destruct. You see this just early on, and I'll just say this: as we continue through Genesis, it's just going to keep getting worse. So please understand that. Like it will keep getting worse as as people, more people populate the earth. Sin will continue to abound. And one of the things that we see in this is that you and I are not to be like Cain. We're not to allow sin as it crouches waiting for us. We are to avoid it. We're to resist it. Actually, in the text it says this. You need, if you do well, like, like resist it, master over it, rule over it. You're not to allow sin to take control of you. And so because of this, I want to give us some things this morning for some notes, if you take notes, of different ways that you and I can avoid uh, sin. I would say this for all of us in this room. All of us know the destructive nature of sin. Like all of us in our life have seen sin literally personified here to jump out of nowhere and just tackle us. Many of us have been defeated by sin. Some of us maybe have been defeated by the same sin our entire life. And what he says here, and I think it's a good word for all of us, is how can we avoid the destructive nature of sin in our life? How can we resist sin? How can we resist this deceptive nature of sin. And so I think there's several things and principles I want to pull from the text. So if you take notes here, here they are. Number one, how can we resist and avoid sin in our life? Number one is worship God the right way. Number one is to worship God the right way. I think this is absolutely huge. This is where the story, in a sense, starts, where everything really starts. It starts with worship. You see this, that one valued God, one worshiped God with true faith. The other did so out of duty, maybe just to look like they were worshiping. But one was truly surrendered to God. One was not even just not just in what they offered, but even Cain's response. Cain has complete disregard for God and what God has to say. Even when God comes graciously to warn him, don't give in to this, he still has complete disregard for God. So it seems very clearly revealing Cain's heart that Cain really didn't worship God. Abel worshiped God. Abel truly worshiped God, but Cain did not. That there is a worship that God accepts, and there's also a worship that God disregards. You cannot worship God any way that you want. This is one of the things that's very clear in Scripture, out the, the really the unfolding of all of Scripture, of that you can't just worship God however you think you want to. There is very specific. God is very specific how you are to worship Him, what heart and what motive you are to bring to Him as you come to worship. Here's a question that I was kind of asking myself all week, and I want to ask you just a rhetorical question, and that is this. This, this really started mess with me. 
And that's this. Do you think God honors and accepts our worship on Sunday when the rest of the week we live for ourselves? Do you think God has regard for our worship that we offer on Sunday when the rest of the week we live for ourselves? I don't know. Listen to what God says in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Isaiah 29, 13. The Lord said, Because this people, they draw near to me with their mouths and they honor me with their lips, but while their hearts are far from me. Their fear of me is just a commandment taught by men. Here's what Isaiah is saying, God saying through Isaiah. He says, all they do is just pay lip service. That's all it is. They say the right thing. They do the right thing. They actually really do the thing only out of fear of duty of man. The problem is their hearts are actually far from me. I was thinking about this and just thinking about this in our life. Do we, when we think about worship, and as we think about worship, do we worship God? Is it just lip service? Or is it truly because we honor Him from our hearts? That's hard, isn't it? Because here's what I find is interesting about God is that we really can fool a lot of people. We just can't fool God. That God literally sees past our words. He sees past our time. He sees past our song. Like He sees past it all. And He sees to the root of our heart. And that's what He looks at Israel. He says, they pay lip service to me. The problem is their heart isn't even close to me. And their heart does not even want to draw near to me. And so one of the things I think we need to ask this question of is, are we worshiping God? Here's what I've realized in my life, different times and seasons in my life, where I've been captivated of worship by God, where I've sought to, to make God really the, the object of my worship and my affection. There's this tendency that seems to happen when you engage God and want to worship God with everything that you are. It seems like sin and different things in our life seem to kind of fade away. Not that they go away completely, but it seems to me like when my eyes are so focused on Jesus, sin doesn't seem as appealing in my life. And it's similar to this, that if we want to avoid sin and avoid the dangers of sin of our life, it comes by, what are you worshiping? Because here's what he seems to imply to Cain. He says, look, if you do what is right, if you offer the worship that's acceptable, like, don't you think that will go well? He says, but you've not offered what is acceptable. In a sense, you are not worshiping me. And because of that, understand, sin is crouching and waiting to jump on you. And so if we want to make sure that we're avoiding sin, it really is to ask this question is what captures your affections? What is it that you worship? What is it that you love? What is it? What is getting your worship? What is getting your heart? Man, this convicted me all week long, like just thinking about like, God, do I just pay lip service to you? And then really, at the end of the day, I really just care about me and myself and my kingdom. We need to first evaluate where our worship is. Second is if we want to avoid sin. Second is this, is to avoid anger. Second is to avoid anger. Because Cain was rejected, because he was jealous, because he was envious and there was bitterness in him, you see this really flesh out in Cain's life, is anger. Now, I love walking through books of the Bible because I can't remember the last time I preached on anger, but what's interesting is there's this connection all the way through Scripture of this connection between being angry and walking in sin and evil. I'll give you several. Psalms 37, 8 says this, Refrain from anger, forsake wrath, fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. James 1, 19-20, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. 
Colossians 3, 8, it says this, But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. There's other verses that begins to notice, but there's this, there's this pattern that it seems to imply that when you are angry, it tends to only result in sin. I mean, think about it in, just think about our life. Have you noticed that when you're angry, you tend to say something you don't want to say, you tend to think something that you don't want to think, or you tend to act in a way that you know you shouldn't act that way, but there's something about anger, when we allow it to fester in our hearts, bitterness, anger, wrath, whatever it is, is that it only tends usually to lead towards sin and evil in our life. And there's this thing, I think there's this warning for us here in this idea of looking at Cain, is that if we don't want to give in to sin, then don't give in to anger. Avoid anger at all possible. Now you may say this, well, Jesus got angry. Or you may say Ephesians actually tells us to be angry and do not sin. True. That is very true. If you notice that, that is very true. Anger can be a good thing. We can be angry about injustice in the world, harm of the innocent, disregard of God. So there can be a right anger, but let's be honest. How often are we angry about those things? Usually not very much, right? You know, one of the things I think that anger really reveals as it goes back to worship, anger really reveals what we love most. Because that's really what anger is, is is a response of love. If I'm out playing with Piper, and she's out in in our yard, in our front yard playing, and I see a car speeding by as fast as possible, I'm probably going to get really angry at that driver. Why? Because they got into something, they began to get into the realm of affecting something I love, my daughter. Sometimes anger is a good thing, but many times anger reveals, in a sense, what we really love and what we really cherish. Tim Keller says this, and I want you to listen to what Tim Keller, exposing anger in our hearts, he says this. And I like how he puts it. There's nothing wrong with being ticked. I like how he puts that. Getting angry to a degree if somebody slights your reputation, but why are you ten times or a hundred times more angry about it than some horrible violence of injustice that's being done to people in the world? Do you want to know why? Because if what you're really looking to for your significance and security, your securities and people's approval or a good reputation or a status or something like that, then anything that gets in between you and the things that you have, you become implacably angry. You have to have what you want and over the top, you can't shrug it off. And so here's in a sense what he's saying is that most of the time we really begin to evaluate why we're angry is because we're selfish people. It's because many times it's not that some injustice has been done in the world. It's because we think we deserve better. We get angry over things that are selfish. Some things are good in our life, but think about many times in our life, anger comes from a place of selfishness. I think we can, well, I don't know if we can all agree on this, but the reality is like, we love ourselves. And that sounds really like conceited like to say that out loud, but, but we, we, we would never say it like that. But the way many times we respond in anger reveals that many times we get angry over things that maybe we just wanted it done a certain way and it didn't get done that way. And so we feel slighted by why it wasn't it done the way that I wanted it to be done. Maybe someone offended us, and maybe they didn't even mean to offend us, but we take it personal. There's multiple things in our life. Sometimes it could be a really offensive thing, but here's the question I want to ask this morning. Is it this morning, where you are, is there somebody this morning that you're angry at? Whether it's something minor or it could be something really big. This morning, is there somebody that you're jealous of, envious of, resentful of, or harboring bitterness toward? Let me just say this as a heat of warning. That anger only tends to lead to sin. And if you're harboring angerness 
or anger or bitterness or envy or jealousy or resentment towards someone, understand this, while it will hurt that person, it will also in turn hurt you. And so you need to know this this morning. If you're harboring something against someone this morning, then I want to encourage you to let the anger go, even while hard it may be, to not harbor hate and bitterness and resentment towards someone else. Here's what I found was interesting. I need to move to the next one. But I found this interesting. You know in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually talks about anger. But in one of the things he says this, he says, if you go to make an offering and you realize you have something against someone else, don't offer it. Go make it right with someone else. You know, I, thought, I had this thought. What if Cain the entire time had something against Abel before he went to offer it? I, I just thought about that this week. I mean, I, I can't like prove that, so don't take it like, oh, James said this is the thing. But like, I was thinking, like, what if Cain had been harboring bitterness toward Abel the entire time? And in making an offering, instead of making it right with his brother, he offered it anyway. And I would say this for many of us this morning, is this is a warning for us when we come to worship. It's hard to truly worship God the right way when you're harboring angerness and bitterness and resentment towards someone else, especially if they're in the room. And so for all of us, we need to, to evaluate, is there somebody that we've had these feelings toward and... and by the grace of God to say, God, I want to let this go because it only tends, and we see Cain, it only tends toward, toward sin. Number three, if we want to avoid sin, number three is this, that we need to love your neighbor. Another way to avoid sin is to seek to love our neighbors. It's important that when we begin to love other people, it takes the attention off ourselves and we begin to focus on others and not on ourselves. You may say, well, James, thanks for letting me know that, but I've never killed my sibling and so I don't struggle with anything that Cain struggled with. True. But John takes this up in John, 1 John 3.11, and he says this looking at Cain. I want you to listen to what John says. He says, For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. For we know that we have passed out from death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in abiding in him. That's strong. He's actually picking up what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. says this, you've heard it said, don't murder someone. I'll take it a step further. If you're harboring anger and hatred towards someone, you've already committed adultery. I mean, you've already committed murder. You know why? It's because that's the root of murder. Anger, bitterness, resentment, those things are what caused Cain to rise up to murder. He says, look, do not harbor these things in your heart. Why? Because they only tend to lead what is evil. You may not physically murder them, but you will sure rid them from your life. And he's saying this, as hard as it may be, even if you've suffered harm in your life, he's saying this, seek to love people. Like I was just even think of this in in a church context, and here's what I'm very aware of, and I know this, I know this is probably the reality for many people this morning. Like, we would think that this is the one place that you could come to and not get hurt, but that's not the truth, is it? Like many people that have gone to church, well-intentioned, good-meaning churches, and they've been hurt, and that's not. Let me just say this: if you're here, like that's not our intention to ever hurt you, to ever harm you, to ever say anything to embarrass you, or, or, or but the reality is. Or the problem is when you mix a lot of people that still struggle with the flesh, like all of us, there's a tendency for people to get their feelings hurt. There's a tendency for for these things to happen. And here's one of the things that that needs to be fostered with all of us. 
if we want to resist sin and the way that destroys relationships and all these things, that we need to love each other. I mean, when you think about, you know, because we think about love, and, and let me just say this. As I say that, you're like, wow, that sounds really good. You, you just don't know who, I'm, who you're telling me I got love. Because that doesn't sound very evil. I love in 1 Corinthians 13, this is read at weddings, even though it, not in the context of a wedding. But he tells us, like, love is patient. It's kind. It does not envy. I mean, think, think all these things are speaking into Cain. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices at the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. Think about this. If all of us in the power of the Holy Spirit begin to seek to live that way in our life, like think what our churches or our lives would be like seeking to love people that way. If we want to resist evil and the power of sin in our life, then we need to make sure that we're loving people, loving our neighbor. Number four is that we need to confess your sin. Number four, confess your sin. 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says this. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us from all unrighteousness and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Cain, we see this in the text, Cain completely denied everything. Never owns up to it one time. Like completely it makes excuses, gets smart aleck. I mean, does everything possible. And the reality is, is what God, when he comes to him, is asking for a confession. God is gracious and God is good, but God is also just and he's also righteous. And this reality for all of us in our life is to think about this. Is it even this morning to think is this idea of that we're to be people of confession. Like even this week in my truck, like I was even thinking about this, this whole idea of worship. I'm like, God, forget. Like, like it's like the word of God began to just like open up. Like, you know, James, like, you know, like you're preaching those people, but you're really preaching to yourself. You know that, right? Like, you know, I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about you. And so even like for me, as we come to the text or come to whether sermons or podcast, whatever it is. And it's like the, the truth of God begins to our response is this is confess to acknowledge, God, I have wronged you. God, I have done things that, God, you don't approve of. And, and this, this constant state of, and understand this, I'm not constantly, because I need to constantly confess so that God will forgive me. God has already forgiven me. But it's this acknowledgement, God, I recognize, my, I recognize what I've done. I recognize my sin. And so we, as God's people, if we want to tend away from avoiding sin, is that we must be able to confess sin, own up to the things that we've done. Let me just say this. The ultimate way we avoid sin is Jesus. One of the things in the stories that you can't help but notice in the story of Cain and Abel is you can't help by reading it and not seeing Jesus. Actually, in this story, Abel in this story represents Jesus. Someone who truly worshipped God, but yet was killed for it. I want you to listen to this. Hebrew actually tells us this. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, it says this. And to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkling of blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. He takes Jesus and then he takes it to Abel and he says, actually Jesus, his blood that was shed speaks a better word. And in the text it told us this, that his blood was speaking to God, crying out for justice. Now how could Jesus be the greater Abel? or Why does his blood speak better than Abel? And it's this truth. Jesus' blood speaks a better word because Abel's blood just accuses while Jesus' blood silences the accuser. 
Abel's blood cried out for an accusation, cried out for justice. Here's what's beautiful about the blood of Jesus. It actually silences the accuser. So Jesus' blood actually covers it. So one of the things I was thinking about in this reality of thinking about avoiding sin and how do we overcome sin that ultimately comes by the blood of Jesus. That because Jesus Christ was slain on our behalf, because he went to the cross, because he was crucified, because of all of this, because he was resurrected on the third day, that anyone who comes and responds to God and what he has done to Jesus, that you will be forgiven. And to think about that, anytime the accuser for us as followers, anytime the accuser ever comes to accuse us, the blood of Jesus begins to speak. You can't accuse them because my blood has covered them. When we meet and, and when we come before the throne room of God to be judged, you know what will speak on our behalf? The blood of Jesus. It will speak and declare that we are, we are righteous, not because of our own doing, not because of our own efforts. It's because of Jesus' efforts on our behalf. And so ultimately, the power of sin and the power to be able to rule over sin doesn't come by my efforts. It comes by the blood of Jesus. It's the blood of Jesus that comes to redeem me and save me and forgive me and allows me now to begin to walk in worship. It allows me now to begin to not harbor anger, to love people that it's hard to love, to even walk in confession, is it all comes because of the person of Jesus. I hope you see this, like, above anything. Like, I hope if we've looked through the book of Genesis, I hope you see Jesus everywhere. Why? Because he is. That all of this is about him. And all of these things culminate in the person and the work of Jesus, that he is worthy, that he is good, that he is perfect. And he is the solution to everything, every problem of sin, our hope, all of these things are only found in the person of Jesus. My prayer is this morning, so you don't know him, you would know him. In just a second when I pray, we're going to respond. And ultimately, that's the first response is, do you know Jesus? If you don't, I'll be down here at the, at, during our time of response. And then after, we'll have people in the connection room. I'll be down here. And so, please talk to somebody. But also think about this, for those in this room that you are a follower of Jesus, there's still a response for you. Maybe it's even in these moments as we sing, or maybe as you just contemplate or reflect, where's your worship? Where's your worship centered? What about anger, bitterness, or resentment in your life? Maybe the response is this, it's not even staying in here. Maybe it's going across the aisle. Maybe it's walking out the door and grabbing your cell phone and calling somebody. Maybe it's begin to, even that, that person, to say, Lord, allow me to begin to, to display love toward them. To have love toward people. Or maybe even this morning it's confession of sin. To own up to the things that you've done. I hope that you would respond. I'm thankful that we have a Savior that is gracious good.